Today we begin the book of Isaiah, which is ambitious in scope and size. Perhaps you love the prophetic books or regularly spend time reading the entire Bible each year, but I'm thinking that that's probably not true for most of us. When we look at Isaiah or read it, we experience how unwieldy and difficult to grasp it is. It was written in a time for a people who are far removed and beautifully different than us. Israel was a, co a covenantal monarchy. Yahweh was their king, which is different than our reality. This book is not a biography, nor is it organized in chronological order. It's an anthology of sermons from a prolific and faithful prophet of God. And since we're going to spend the majority of the year in this book, we want to familiarize ourselves with one of the most important writings in all of Scripture. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem during the time of the end of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. He was the son of Amos. His name means God saves. He was married to a prophetess who was not named, but with whom he had at least two sons. Isaiah spoke for God under the reign of four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and prophesied from 739 to 681 BCE to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. There was a lack of humility, and the people were treating one another with disdain. Their sacrifices, their worship was rote. They perpetuated injustices against one another and turned a blind eye to those who did. It's likely that he met his death under the fifth king, an evil guy named Manasseh. And early Christian tradition from the second century says that Isaiah met an ugly death that he was sawn into, which Hebrews 11 mentions as a terrible fate for some who were faithful witnesses of God. Now, Isaiah is one of the major prophets, so named because of the length of the book, coming at a whopping 66 chapters, as many chapters as there are actual books in the Bible. Isaiah is indeed a big deal. There are three major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And Ezekiel, if you read it, there are a lot of kind of unbelievable visions, hard to understand. Jeremiah, there's a lot of weeping and doom there. But Isaiah reaches toward a redemptive expectation, which is why we have entitled our series, Holding Out Hope. This is a book where we will read difficult words, but there is always an arrow pointing toward the end when God will usher in a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem where people find true shalom. There's a lot of judgment in this book, and I want to I talk about that for a minute. I want to offer three kind of distinct ideas about that. First, the depth of God's disappointment and anger is commiserate with the beliefs and the actions of the people. God is not making stuff up or blowing things out of proportion. For the Lord to ignore the people's actions as if they don't matter would go against his character. Don't we tell those who are closest to us when they have hurt us? Secondly, people have made a point sometimes to tell me how pastors talk a lot about sin. When the Bible is preached, the message has to be spoken. 
And we can't just go with the scriptures that make us feel good, however much we might want to. God is holy. We have difficulty sometimes comprehending how exactly perfect and good and fearsome God is. He has no equal. He radiates purity. Sometimes we don't appreciate the unalloyed righteousness of God, and we certainly don't have a proper view of our own brokenness. We're so used to God's grace that we, jump, we quickly want to jump to it. But Isaiah does not allow us to do that. Yahweh has us sit in the tension of why humans should even receive mercy. Which leads me to the third thing I want to say, is that God's judgment is never the end. Ever. It's necessary, it's detailed, but it's never the last word. There's always hope and redemption from God. Salvation is a theme in Isaiah, and and judgment and hope are twin ideas that are going to go back and forth in the whole book. The good news is, is how God is merciful, ultimately through the suffering servant. Now, Isaiah is the scroll that Jesus reads in the synagogue when he first comes to Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, to go and to preach the good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to bring justice. And when we hear that story about Jesus, we understand how uniquely the Jewish community was raised and shaped by the beautiful story of God found in the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel because its predictions and descriptions and picture of the Messiah is the most comprehensive in the Old Testament. In this book, we see the full scope of the life of the Messiah. We are familiar with some of those, some of those scriptures. When it talks about his coming, his birth, the proclamation of the good news, his death, and the new Jerusalem. Isaiah is quoted often in the New Testament that helps us see the full arc of God's plan. There are over 60 direct quotes, but there are hundreds of paraphrases and allusions and inferences from the book of Isaiah in the New Testament, making this book the most utilized writer, Isaiah, for the gospel that we have. Isaiah provides a richness we miss, and we want to pay attention to this beautiful scripture. The gospel writers relied heavily on the words of this prophet when the predictions about Jesus began to be understood in real time for them. John quotes Isaiah in chapter 12, saying how the people had been blinded in their eyes to God. They had been deadened in their hearts. And then he says this, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him as the Savior. Listen to a quote from Dr. Bo Lim from SPU on this. Christian discipleship involves having the message of Isaiah shape the core of our identity and purpose in life. We as the church have the privilege of inheriting the same playbook and script that was well-worn in the hands of Jesus, the apostles, the church fathers, and saints for countless generations. If you want to know Jesus intimately, read Isaiah. Jesus and his followers, then and now, possess Isaiah-shaped lives. This is our prayer for all of us this year, that we would possess Isaiah-shaped lives.
while we have the Messiah, Isaiah wrote in hope about the truth. And that truth continues to be the reality that we live into today. God's holiness and purpose and plans and truth are still in effect. And we look at this historic work to help us look forward to the second coming that Chloe sang about today. Many of us have verses from Isaiah that we love. Hank spoke about one of them today. And as we start reading those verses and the context around them, we are going to be so much more familiar and understand them and appreciate them in a whole new way. Now, the book of Isaiah is broken down into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 39, known as the former things, talks about Israel's sin and judgment that will culminate in exile. Chapters 40 through 66, known as the latter things, is about the hope of the restoration after the judgment and will culminate in the fulfillment of all that God has promised. There are six movements in the first section. Now, be assured, we're not going to read every single word in Isaiah. I don't know how long that would take us, maybe three years. We are going to read a lot of it, and so I'll encourage you when we skip over something that you can read that on your own. Today, we start with the first one, Isaiah 1, 1 through 9. Dr. Sandra Richter uh, has shared her notes with us, and we are so grateful for that. She's an, a scholar on Isaiah, and she says how chapter 1 is a lawsuit between God and Israel. Yahweh is literally suing his people because they have not lived up to the contract they signed on for with him. The drama is centered on Judah and their God. So we're going to go through these words. I'm going to have the verses up on the screen, and then we're going to talk about each different piece briefly to see the beginning, to dip our toe in the water of Isaiah so that we can see what's going on. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, when he, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So verse 1 is simply an introduction. It tells us who is speaking. It tells us the entire work is a unified vision of the prophet. And it tells us when Isaiah served. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. When the Lord speaks, notice to whom he is speaking. Can we leave that up while, uh, while I do it? Thank you. He is speaking to the heavens and the earth. God has relationship with the heavens and the earth. All of the inhabitants of creation are witnesses to the accusations God is bringing against the people. Not only that, this is a reminder that the entire universe is affected by humanity's relationship with God. The universe, the creation, is blessed or cursed because of our actions. One day, the heavens and the earth will be made new. But at this point, they listen. And we think about the beauty and the majesty that we love in our world. We think about when we go to amazing places and we gush and we say, oh my word, that was so beautiful. And I want you to think about those beautiful places. Think about those places in awe of God. How those places worship and lift up their creator. They're listening. We also want to listen. Uh, verses 2 through 4. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
Woe, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who act corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. God speaks here as a parent who has raised up children. Child rearing is arduous, tender work. It's consuming. It's intentional. God wants the best for those that he has lovingly made. The pain is real for parents whose children are in rebellion, who are estranged from them, who are weighed down by their choices and looking for their worth elsewhere. God has feelings. He wants more for his children than they want for themselves. He wants to be close to them and have them receive the love and the blessing of his offers. He even says that the ox and the donkey know their master. They, they respect the authority under which they live. They know to whom they owe their life. God seems to be saying how his people don't know or understand not only are they in rebellion against God, they have forsaken him. They have despised him in their estrangement. Verses 5 and 6. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is injured. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it. Only bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. They have not been drained or bound up or softened with oil. Here God is holding up a mirror to Israel. There's a hard truth here. It might be hard for us to hear. We like to blame. We don't always see how we are part of the problem. And God is saying, do you see what is happening? You are hurting yourself. He points to their head being injured, and I picture a person hitting their head against the wall in the prison that they have made for themselves. And their head is wounded, and their heart is faint from living in a way that keeps them in the same place, trying to get someplace in life. Their whole body is injured. Sin hurts the entire system from the inside, and then the hits just keep on coming. There is no healing. But what we hear here is God's truth wrapped in compassion. Don't we? Can you see it? Let me bind your wounds, he says. Stop for a minute. Just come and let me comfort you. Let me help soften the affected areas with oil. Let me care for you. Lastly, verses 7 and 9. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And daughter Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a shelter in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So now they're not just hurting themselves. The land is suffering, there's war, there's desolation in their cities. This is not a picture of peace, this is not a picture of the abundance of God's presence. This is what life looks like in rebellion. There's a picture here of a booth in a vineyard. Isaiah says, a shelter in a cucumber field. That would have been a temporary shack farmers would have used 
in the vineyards or the fields to sleep in overnight to keep on working. But I'm from the Central Valley. In good times, there are thriving wooden lean-tos in the fields where you can go and get strawberries and peaches and almonds. Can I get an amen, Mike and Carrie, both from Atwater? Yes. And in bad years, when a farmer leaves the field, the structure just stays there. Maybe with the sign, like badly painted, just sitting there. The land is torn up, there's no crop. That's the image I see. Emptiness and poverty, and desolation where there once was a booming place of life. But the picture ends with a little ray of hope that we've got to keep looking for. The people are reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah, who, whom God had destroyed after promising Abraham he would spare them. If just a few faithful people were found who were righteous. But after Lot and his family leave, none are found. And he reminds the people how Judah is still standing. You are still able to hear the words of the Lord. You are not utterly destroyed. And they are reminded of God's mercy even as they are put on trial for their transgressions against him. Now, God is accusing the people of issues we are familiar with from Scripture that all kind of boils down to how they are disregarding the commandment of how to treat God and how to treat others. And the commandments are outward expressions of a heart that is in correct posture toward God. And in this passage, we see what God values and cares most about what God values is being connected with creation. What the Lord values is direct and open communication with humanity. God values trust. God values being honored for giving them life, for being God. God values the desire to give and to comfort his people. He values community expression of worship. And God values boundaries. Boundaries are good things. God is only going to be pushed so far. You see, we often look at the judgment passages and we think about how wrong people are. But flip it. Flip it to see God's value. Flip the passage to see it in light of who God is and what he wants so as we contemplate these words this morning, what do you hear from them? What values stand out to you about what you hear God saying to his people today? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.